in a world of stereotypes, being called a geek comes with a certain image. There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy Paul, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Hear their stories exclusively on fantastic universes. It's one of them like, you've ever gonna grow up? And I'm like, no, why should I? I, I like my life, I, I enjoy what I do, this is my hobby. Available on all your favorite podcast catchers. The legend, the wanderer himself. I feel like you've probably just heard a little clip of I'm the wanderer before this show started. So you're like, why were we listening to I'm the wanderer? Here's why. The wanderer himself, Mr. Max Byrne. Hello, my friend. Hey, Tony. Oh, I'm honored, thrilled, delighted to be finally back on here to discuss uh, a great book with you. It's, it's always a treat to speak to you. And uh, I'm honoured for the uh, the Wanderer mention as well. <laughs> of course, people may not know that. That alludes to my my beloved hometown football club, Bolton Wanderers FC, a third-tier football club in the northwest of England that, um, well, people in England obviously know who they are, but um, over the pond there where you are, they're probably not exactly a household name, are they? <laughs> no, not at all. And honestly, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't know that they existed. But I have to admit, that is maybe the best name of all the names, the Wanderers. I love it so much. I was like, what? That's just like badass. They're just like, we're going to call it like it is. This is who we are. We kind of stumbled our way in here. We don't know. I just think it's such a cool. Is that it? Is it has something to do with the city of Bolton being Wanderers? Was it founded by people who are like, I'm tired. I'm just going to stop moving. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know. I'm probably just showing complete ignorance here to the history of my football club. But I don't know. I think it's just to do with the fact that there's a lot of clubs in England called Rovers as well, like um, oh, Rovers, okay. Wanderers, that kind of thing. I think it's because they go they rove, they wander from town to town playing other teams. So I think that's where it comes from anyway. I mean, we're oh. going back to the late, the late 1800s here when they were formed. So that's Christ amazing. knows. But uh, Christ yeah, knows. Yeah. That's, honestly, yeah. that's the coolest thing. Like nothing in America is built to last. I always say America, and, and no offense to anyone who's lived in a trailer park because, you know, none, plenty of my family members have, but I always say America is the world's trailer park. Nothing is designed <laughs> to last. Like when you go to a trailer park, there's these people working their asses off and they're trying hard, but they know the house that they bought is designed to fall apart in 10 years and they have to buy another one. Like everything in America is planned obsolescence. So the fact that there's a sports team that's that old, that is just like exists, um, you know, for that long. That's amazing. So I love that about, about your country that you guys are like, no, nah, this is going to be here. We're just going to, this is here hundreds of years later. It's still here. I mean, you know, so that's amazing. So 
I love that. No, I'm sure I just pissed off all the American listeners. I we talked about uh, uh, you know Europe English football, <laughs> and I called us the world's trailer park. But it's true. It's kind of true. Nothing here is built. Uh, if you if you say it, I'll go it's, with that. It's yeah. really it's just frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating. But I think that ties in nicely to the book we're going to do this week because I do think this book is a commentary on like. American unexceptionalism um, and and like what it takes to get ahead here and what we what we reward and, and how you you know so we'll get into all of that as we go so it's a uniquely American uh, book I think even though it does it does globe trot a little they do go into Mexico but it's a very and to Paris but it's a very uniquely American book mm. um, and so, as, as everybody knows, Max, the host of Mandatory Marvel and DC, is a, is a big two guy. And there's nothing wrong with the big two. I love the big two. I'm drinking from my Batman mug right now. So, but, so what we do when Max comes on, we're like, let's just get big two adjacent. And let's talk about Vertigo comics, which I still think, I know they have black label, but I still think they've made a mistake moving everything into the DC universe. So this is technically not in the DC universe. And it is the epic 100 book adventure by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Risso, 100 bullets. So mm. I couldn't have, and I'm the one who convinced you to buy this. And again, I apologize publicly on Twitter to Sarah because it was another thing in your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I bought the, um, the, the, uh, the um, huge omnibus. Uh, vol- well, it's only volume one. It's like issues one to 58. Yeah. And the, honestly, I could use it as a, a door stopper um, if I ever got shot and was holding it in front of me, I don't, I don't think the bullet would even reach my body. It's one of those. If you dropped it out of your window and you were still underneath, you'd be dead. It's that big a book. But it is, it's, um, it's quite the read, as we'll get into. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited that you read it. So you hadn't read it, and it was just kind of one of those things, right? So the, as DC does, as, as all comic companies do, and I think Steve, uh, Ozzy Steve was talking about this, where he's like, I'll get the singles, then I'll get the collected editions when they're paperback. And then when they put them out in hardback, I get those sold like seven copies of the same thing with all the special editions. And so that's just what this is. It's just another edition of another edition. But it worked out because you didn't have any of these. So this is a good place for, for somebody who's not read these before to put them out in two fat omnibuses. So the first 58 will be in there, and then the next 42 will be there, and you'll have all 100 issues sometime soon the second volume will come out um so what do you what do you yeah. this is your first time reading it but what did you know about 100 bullets before this i knew of it by reputation i remember years ago they were trying to make go well, i think they got quite far down the process before they for whatever reason they pulled the plug but they were supposed to be making a video game of it um oh. probably about 50 maybe about 15 years ago or something like this that would have been out on well, I guess at that time we would have been up to about the PlayStation 2 at the time. Um, obviously, now we're at five, but I think then we were at two. And it was supposed to be this big video game release. Apparently, Keanu Reeves was going to do the voice work. Wow. And, and it was going to be like this third person, you know, action game. And you you kind of have a choice of like two of the Minutemen you'd play as. And it was supposed to be this big blockbuster game. And for whatever reason, it got shelled. But I remember at the time it was causing... Because back then I was... Not now. I, I very rarely play games now. But back then I was quite into that kind of thing. And, and, you know, I remember reading about it and thinking, oh, this would be good, you know. Um, so I knew of it by reputation. And, and Brian Azzarello, of course, um, very prolific, even to this day over at DC. Yeah. He's done a lot 
there over the years and continues to do a lot of the years. So I've been a fan of him and his work. If, if not the man himself, we'll get to that as well. Also. Um, so I just thought, you know, it, it's one I'll know I'll enjoy. It's just, you know, the age old story, I suppose, Tony, there's only so much money to spend on books and, you know, you can't have everything. So um, it was one of those I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to, but again, it's, you know, a hundred issues is a big commitment. So it worked out quite well, actually, that they finally decided to collect it in omnibus format because then you can have, a load in one hit without having to spend on sort of eight or nine trade paperbacks or whatever uh, they, they did it in that format. So yeah, um, very much aware of it. Um, but obviously I hadn't read it until about probably four or five weeks ago. So um, I was uh, not disappointed, we should say. Nice. Yeah. Well, I was going to, as I was rereading it, I was like, just going to read up to 58. But as I said to you in our WhatsApp messages, I'm like, I gotta just keep going. I'm just going to read to the end. Cause it was one of those things like you had to stop because you're just out of books. Um, and it is such an interesting place to stop, which we're going to spoil the hell out of this 20 something year old book, everybody. So don't, if you've not read 100 Bullets, I mean, you could listen, but we're definitely going to spoil some stuff. I mean, there's so much to talk about, though. It's such a rich story that honestly, even with the stuff we're spoiling, there'll be plenty of surprises. There's zero chance we're going to touch on everything. I mean, we could mm. spend an hour just talking about Graves and Shepard, and we wouldn't even talk about anybody else. So We'll, yeah. we'll go where we want to go. We'll let the conversation take us where it wants to go. Um, so yeah, I, well, that's cool. I, you know, it's one of those books for me because I only read it in omnibus form. It wasn't something that I was reading. Um, you know, it won a bunch of Eisners. So it's, again, it's like, it's on your radar. You're, you know what it's, you know what's up. Um, but it was also um, expensive. <laughs> and so, yeah. like you said, I mean, there's only so much time and with floppies, I don't, I don't collect floppies anymore at all. I, I will get, there's some vault comics that I get through Comixology. I get digitally um, just because that's the only way you can get vault. I can't really get them any other way as, other than to buy them, which is fine. Happy to support a good indie comic company. I love vault comics. And uh, Steve, actually Steve, our good friend, Steve Ray is the one who turned me on to vault. And I was like, what am I missing? There's some good shit over there. But for the most part, yeah. you know, you just can't. Um, it's hard. Uh, I wish it weren't the case. Matt Lloyd and I have talked, and you and I have talked about it. Man, they would just bring back the ads. They could bring the price point way down. Just start putting ads in comics again. We don't care. In fact, they're kind of cool. It makes them a time capsule to go back and look at those old ads and be like, oh, this is what people were wearing when I read, you know, this Green Lantern book when I was 10. And there's an ad in there. So, um, you know, but there's who wants to advertise in this book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, used to, I used to love reading those ads as well. When I was, when I was, Kid and I, I was born in 79 so growing up through the 80s and my sort of comics I was given were I didn't get the latest ones off the rack especially in the UK in the 80s they were hard to get so the stuff I used to be given was stuff from the 60s and the 70s so I used to look at these adverts and think what kind of world must it be you know in America there was all these sort of Charles Atlas adverts and like this you know 90 pound wimps getting sand kicked in the face and then they get this book or whatever and then they come back looking like triple h and they're surrounded by the hot babes on the beach and i was thinking god what a world we live in you know or people advertising like sea like like seahorses or something yeah yeah, yeah. You could buy them and grow grow your own sea creatures or something yeah. it's bizarre as a, as, yeah. a, as a young boy you know yeah absolutely the x-ray specs that was always one of the favorite ones that was there and i mean i will admit to getting some of those things and it turns out none of them are true but i i did 
I mean, <laughs> I, I was a sucker. So the advertising was well spent. Um, but I do think that's that is the sad thing about, you know, the comic book industry is that they are aging themselves out, much like American baseball. You continue to target the old people who love it, then the young people can't afford it and don't give a shit. And eventually it will go away. And that is what's, I think, going to happen to uh, They got to figure something out. Got to figure it out yeah. um, because there's so much great work out there that is just, or it's all going to be omnibus. You're not going to do floppies. It's just going to be every six months, you're going to get a collection of six. And that's the only way people can afford it, you know, printing cost wise and whatever. If you want individuals, you're going to have to buy them digitally and they're going to go to only printing mm. the, the uh, you know, the collections that may be. I would suck because that's a lot of businesses, a lot of local comic shops that would really be hurt by that, you know, so we can't solve yeah. that, Max. All we can do is talk about gang violence in America. We'll solve that instead. What do you say? <laughs> okay, it's a deal. It's a deal. It's a deal. Okay. <laughs> so the premise of 100 Bullets is we don't know it first. That's what's the coolest thing. So it's maybe about what issue 10 when you finally found out what it is. So for the first 10 issues, it's very much like literally have gun will travel. There's this guy, Agent Graves. He shows up at somebody's place. He gives them a briefcase with 100 bullets and a gun that are untraceable and, and evidence of whomever has harmed the person and says, do whatever you want with these. If you shoot these bullets, if you get arrested, you will be let go. Vengeance is yours. What did you make of that first year's worth of books? Like, because that's all you think it is for the first little bit. You don't get, you're like, well, I wonder who Graves is. But like, hmm. What did you make of that, like that moral ambiguity of of these characters right from the jump and that this is the premise? It's an intriguing premise. It really is. I mean, it, it sort of creates that moral question in what would you do if if you were given the opportunity yourself? And I found, my, I found myself thinking that myself. I mean, you know, I'm quite lucky, I suppose, that I've not lived a life where someone's wronged me to that extent that I would want to go and kill them in revenge or anything like that thank god nothing yeah. like that's ever happened to me but you just think if you were in that situation especially with, with some of the characters and how you learn how they've been wronged and you think would would i do that if i was given that and i had complete carte blanche to do what i wanted and no one no one could punish me for it i couldn't be arrested or prosecuted i don't know i i suppose a part of me thinks yes but there's another part of me thinks no, I couldn't do that. But then I suppose if someone had done something horrific to you and ruined your life in some way, then maybe you would. I don't know. Do you, did you kind of think that yourself, thinking, what would I do in that situation if this guy gave me this opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what makes it such a smart, smart written, smartly written book, um, is that, that that's so for the first 10 issues, that's all it is. It's, it's very samey, but it's all around the country and, and different places and um this is something that happens is that he shows up, he gives them the gun, he gives them the bullets, off you go. Um, and, and, and it is, it's like, well, what, it felt like um, an episode of the Twilight Zone almost, right? It's like, we'll give you a million dollars if you push this button and somebody you don't know will die. And then at the end, she pushes the button and her husband dies. And that's like the whole yeah. like, oh, fuck, yeah. I didn't, you know. So it's that idea of what are you willing to do? And this is the thing, he doesn't offer anybody any money. That I think is yeah. one of the smarter things is there's no money involved. He's not paying them. He's not, we don't know where his money, we find out much later where his money's coming from and how they do this and the power that they have. But it's just, he's seemingly like the world's worst fairy godmother who's like, yep, I'm going to help you. <laughs> it, it is tough. Cause again, like you, I've never been in that situation, but I think 
Azarello creates such really three-dimensional characters. That's one of his best things. He's such a character-driven writer in his stuff in Batman too. He leans heavy into the trauma of Bruce Wayne's life. You know, he's not, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's other, you know, it's a superhero comic, but he really leans into the character stuff with, mm. with when his Batman work, I think, you know, and in everything he does, he's, he's really, he is a character driven guy. And, and I think he gives us these really interesting characters that, that you don't really like, but you can relate to. And so, yeah, I felt that way the first time you read it. And even this time reading it again, I was like, man, what do you do? What would you do? I would hope to say I would have the strength to say no, but there's also mm. a reason that Graves isn't showing up at our house. He's not like, remember that guy who was a dick to you at the market the other day, hundred bullets. You're like, yeah, no, nah, I don't need that. It's, you know, the people he's yeah. going to have been through the ship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they 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 they're given a chance to get revenge on on speakable acts. Like the first couple of characters, he does it to. There's the, the the girl Dizzy who is get the chance to take revenge for the murder of her husband and child. So again, pretty extreme stuff. And then the second guy, the guy working in the bar, was framed for possession of child pornography, wasn't he? Yeah. So again, and, and as by consequence, his life was ruined because his wife left him. He lost his he lost his uh, his business. He lost his, his home. Son. His kids yep. nothing to do with him. It's, yeah, exactly. So those extreme situations, if someone had done that, then I, I don't know. I think I would be quite tempted to pull the trigger, to be honest, Tony. If I'm being if I'm being brutally honest with myself, horrific as that sounds, maybe I'm a sociopath, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think people who've suffered at the hands of others, if someone gave you the chance to do it, you'd think, I've lost. I've lost so much as, as a result of what's happened. What, what else have I got to lose? And nothing will change for me because I can't be punished for it. So why not? You know, you don't have to then try and worry about how you're going to get away with it afterwards because you've already gotten away with it. So, it, so to speak, because there's no, there's no recourse afterwards. So I think it would be very difficult if everyone's brutally honest with themselves, if something that horrific had happened to you that you wouldn't want to pull that trigger. Exactly. And I think that's, to me, that's the, that's the repercussions that we, we have to think about it because as the story evolves and it becomes a much more complicated, complex, um, you know, network of lies and conspiracy theories and all kinds of crazy secret cabals. And it's super cool. But I mean, you know, it's horrific, but like the writing is like the concept is cool. Not that nobody's cool. There's no heroes in this book, but at all. But but what you do get <laughs> <No>. is none. <laughs> Nobody's a hero. And if and again, these are the people like the people who think someone's a hero in this also are wearing the Rorschach was right shirt. And you're like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. There's very, very few sympathetic characters in this book. Every every pretty much everyone is a piece of shit. Right. Um with you know, you could maybe say the 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 the, the girl Dizzy you know, isn't necessarily a, a bad egg as such. And uh, the guy just mentioned as well that the, the guy was framed for the, the, the child offenses. He's a pretty sympathetic, although we, do, we don't get long with him because of we what don't. happens to him. He doesn't he kind make of, it. You, you, you know, but you do feel for him because he's, you know, he's, he's, he was a good person who's got framed. And, and he doesn't pull shit. the trigger. No, exactly. Um, See, and that's, that's just yeah. it. He had carte blanche. He was ready. And then at the end of it, he was still somehow a good person. So of course, and that's where, that's where Azrael was like setting the stakes early on. Cause you're like, okay, it's an anthology series you think. And you're like, okay, you see what Dizzy does. And you're like, all right, well, you know, Dizzy was already a gangbanger before we meet her yeah. off screen. So she's in jail when her husband and son are killed. And so you're like, well, she's done some shit. 
So she's not, her hands are not clean before we oh, meet no, her. Oh, no, no, But this other guy, his hands are, I mean, he's totally a victim. And then you find out that it was just a prank and it was totally random. And so then he really wants to fucking kill, you know, the woman who does it and he still doesn't do it. And so, you know, the, here's somebody who, who you can sympathize with and they're like, well, we're going to kill him off because we're going to set the tone early that you're not going to have anybody to root for <laughs> in this book. Yeah. Um, but it is it is a tough, tough decision to make. And I think that was really smart that we see right away how different people are going to handle things and that um, what you've been through in your life and what you've been willing to do for no reason. What are you going to be willing to do now that you have a reason? You know, and yeah, I think and, th and then we ultimately learn that Graves is collecting people. This is a test. Yeah. Yeah. He's recruiting, isn't he? He's, rec he's recruiting for his, he's recruiting and he's reactivating as well, because we learned that, you know, I don't know how much you want to go into no, it. Go, go. His, his, yeah, yeah. So that his, his group, the Minutemen have all had their sort of somehow had their memories repressed and have no knowledge of their former lives. And we're just sort of put into back into civilian life. And then he's going around sort of scooping them back up to do various things, isn't he? So it's, and, and obviously recruiting new members as well. So it's, it's, there's, there's a method to the madness. He's not like some kind of avenging angel or something, giving, you know, the, the, the poor downtrodden victims a chance to get revenge. There's, there's, there's an ulterior motive for everything he's doing. You know, there's, he's not a, an altruistic kind of guy, is he? Right. Well, but he thinks he is. And so that's that's the interesting part of Graves. So I love the names. We won't be able to get away with this without talking about a lot of the names, but I do want to kind of talk about this idea. So so the premise, everybody, is that so for the first 10 episodes, issues, I say episodes because it's very it could be a TV show. And I and oh, and, yeah. and I do know that Dave's favorite writer, David S. Goyer, actually wrote a, a show, wrote yes. a script for this. Yes. Um, yes, Dave, I know you're going to be sad that it didn't happen, but it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because they never could. They got this close. Showtime was going to do it. Mm. But they ultimately decided to not do it because there's too much gun violence in America. And at no yeah. point could they figure out a way to make this show in the modern day you couldn't make it like, because yeah. it, it would be like even Showtime who, you know, has some hardcore shit on there. was like, yeah. nope, we don't want to do it. And um, it, it, it's, it's again, the, the commentary on American society that here's a comic book that is not glorified. This is not, this is not the glorification of violence, but violence is, is the plot is the backbone of this. And so um, every time I think of this, I think of them as episodes because it is very, and we get into Rizzo's art later, you know, it's, it is very gory and, and it feels immersive in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. but these first 10. It's a shame though. It, it is would, a shame. It would have, it would have made a really good episodic TV show. The story is too vast and, and sort of labyrinthine, I think, to make a film out of this. It, yeah. Yeah. You know, in a two two to three hour film. I, I think there's too much story to fit in, but it would have made a good multi-season layered, ultra violent adult based TV show. I think it would have been perfect. It's such a shame that they got cold feet. You know, I'd, I I'd, agree. I'd even hope that maybe someone will resurrect it, but I can't see it happening, but it's a shame. It would have made a great TV show. This. And I think, it, and I think it would have been important too, because I think the book as as violent as it is, um, it, well, who knows? They made the boys. So maybe maybe this can be the thing when they finish up the boys in a couple of years maybe amazon can be like well you let us do that now mm. we're ready to do this and that's what it's going to take is some 
streaming giant who says, because again, when, you know, we talked about when, when Dave and, and uh, Brad and I talked about the boys, the comment was that I asked them is, you know, when you're showing something that's this horrific, are you ever concerned that someone's going to see it and miss the point? And of course, that's a concern. And of course, that does happen. However, you can't, you can't say we don't make the art because somebody's an idiot and misunderstood the art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what you say. I think, although it is extremely violent, I don't think there's anything that's that's I would consider too horrific for TV. And it, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be made. I don't think. I, like I said, I don't think it will now. Like you said, with they've got if they got cold feet, but it would have been such a good a good show. You know, you could have put a you know a high quality cast in there. There's some great meaty parts there. You know, you wouldn't have had to cast it with unknowns. You could have attracted some quite big name actors to it. And it would have run for five or six years. Um, it's such a missed opportunity, but there it I, is, I guess. I agree. I totally agree. That's you you and I are thinking the same because you wouldn't do a hundred episodes. You would do no. like five, 10 to 13, you know, uh, show seasons, show seasons, you'd cut some of the ones because some of them are like six or seven issues tell one storyline, but you could tighten that up and put that into oh. like one show. You could sometimes it'll cut to a flashback in the middle of an ep- issue where you could just do the flashback as its own show. And then, you know, then you just tell the story in real time. So yeah, there's a lot of things you can move around. There's some characters you could cut, um, obviously, uh, not obviously the the trust, you'd need all 13 of them. But but so so that's the thing, everybody, is that that was a good tangent. Sorry, I took a stare. I was trying. So the trust is this group <laughs> of 13 families that um, rule the world, essentially. And yeah. what they did was they created the Minutemen, which were the police officers that not only protected the trust, but also made them follow their own rules. So it's like we're going to hire these yeah. independent contractors to protect us, to protect our name, but also to keep us in line. Because if you've got 13 rich, power hungry assholes in a room, one of them is going to want to turn on the others. And they're like, no, no, no. If one of us starts to turn, the Minutemen will come and correct them. And if they're not corrected, the Minutemen will kill one of us and they will mm. be replaced. And so it's a very clever idea of self-regulation. The checks and balances are that the Minutemen are zealots <laughs> and um, are willing to do anything. And so Graves in particular is a huge zealot. It's almost like a religious fervor with him. And, and I know you haven't got to the end, but that becomes more and more apparent as the book goes on, the, like the religious right. zealotry that, that Graves has for his job. But what do you make of that idea that, that for Graves, him reactivating the Minutemen is because he feels like... Um, things are bad, things are falling apart. And it's his, like, this is a duty to him. Not just like, he's not in it for anything. He's just dressed in a black suit. He's just a guy. Mm -hmm. He's not like he's living high on the hog and, you know, drinking martinis out of, you know, $70 martinis. He's just a dude. He's a working stiff who has high standards. Now his standards are to kill people, but he believes in doing a job well done. What did you make on that idea of, of what Graves is and why, you know, he's, his, he's so resolute. I can't imagine being as resolute as he is about anything. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a complex kind of guy for much of the series, I think. Um, I mean, it, as it goes on, it becomes he's trying to avenge his betrayal by, by in fact, taking down the trust. 
Um, and that's why he's recruiting, trying to get the Minutemen back together and, and, and strengthen the ranks. Because there, there always has to be seven of them, doesn't there? This group of seven Minutemen. Um, and some fall by the wayside. So that's why he has to get new blood in there. Um, but he's a great character. He's like kind of like the Nick Fury of this universe, isn't he? Going around recruiting the best of the best to um, object, you know, do this mission. And, he, you know, he has that kind of persona as well. He's like this shadowy guy who's who's got all his fingers on the puppet strings um i really like the character i think he's a really engaging character as, as the sort of through line throughout the story because the story does go all over the place i mean you, you sort of settle in with a character for maybe five six issues and then all of a sudden something happens like something abrupt will happen that character's killed or their story comes to an end or what have you and then you immediately in another situation but graves is the through line through the entire thing isn't he he's he's, he's the one constant um, and he grounds the story because I, I meant to ask you this as well tony when you sort of first read 100 bullets did you read it as it was released uh, no. sort of episodically because Mm-mm. i yeah i don't know how anybody could have read this on a, a monthly basis, reading it in, 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 in issue format as each one came out and managed to keep on top of the story and what's happening because it's so it's so involved and so in different places with different characters and different timelines. I think if you're not reading a batch of issues in bulk, then I don't know how you'd keep on top of it. And you'd have to basically, every time a new issue out comes out, is go back and reread the ones you've already got to keep you up to, up to snuff with it, I think. Um, so Graves as a storytelling device works really well, I think, because he grounds the story. And when things are going off in different directions, he's the one who pulls you back in to the main thrust of the story. And the exposition as well is because I was reading the first 10 issues. And obviously, like you said, it's about people doing, you know, being given this opportunity. But because you're not spending too much time with each character, I'm reading and thinking, what the f- is going on here, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I'll admit it. I was at first, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? What is all this about? But then it, it, everything you learn as a reader come pretty much anyway comes from Graves' mouth. I mean, obviously you get bits, you get to see the trust meeting and what have you, but everything that you as a reader need to know and, and the history lesson you need to be given as well tends to come through the Graves character. So for me, he is the de facto main guy or person in this book, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And no, yeah, I didn't read them in real time and I agree. And I don't know if that, and it did, I mean, you know, a testament to Karen uh, and her genius to let this go. I don't know what the sales figures were. I mean, it won a bunch of Eisner, so that was always going to get you legs to finish the series yeah. to be like, we're going to get the whole story. Yeah. If it the deal for was- 10 years. Yeah, you know, and right. And if that was the deal, it's like, listen, you know, I'm going to give you the hundred books and that's because, you know, he knew it's just like Neil always said he wanted Sandman to end at a certain place, you know, and then, you know, if he wants to go back into the world, it's his choice to do so or let others like, you know, recently let others play in the sandbox. He, he can allow that. But I think there's something to telling a story with, you know, how it's going to end. I just did Sweet Tooth. That show hasn't been released yet, but I've recorded it the week before you and I are talking. And same thing, 40 books. I Jeff had a story that he wanted to tell and here's a story. And Brian yeah. and Eduardo had a story they wanted to tell. And so I think that is a testament to, I don't think this book would make it its 100 issues this year. Now, if it were starting today, I don't think it would make it. I don't think the sales figures would do enough, but back then it was doing enough sales and because Karen was in charge she's like no we're gonna make good books right yeah and it was complicated and it is like literature and you we've talked about this before and i've heard you say it 
I've, you know, we've talked about this a bunch offline, online, on our shows, comic books are literature. And this is what you just said, the complex nature of it. It, it is, this is a book that is designed to be read, I think, omnibus by omnibus, either, either you're reading arc by arc every, you know, six to 10 issues, or um, they have five, they have a collection of five, that's what I have where it's like, and there varies. So one has 19 and this one has 22 and this. So it's like, what is a good place to stop? So book three ends with 58 and then the last 42 are in right. the, the two books. So, um, and so I, I think it's definitely designed to be a story. This is like, you know, epic on the scale, uh, you know, on the, like Lord of the Rings. It's a big epic. Like when you read yeah. Lord of the Rings, you know, we didn't read them when they came out because we, we weren't alive. So when I read Lord of the Rings, <laughs> I just read them all as a story. You know, it's one, I didn't have to wait years until the Two Towers came out. I just could keep reading. So I definitely think that that this this story is better told as an epic as opposed to as a small 32 pages a month. That would have driven me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I, I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have been able to sustain it myself. I would have lost my way with it completely. And, you know, I, I, I don't mind hundred issues. You know, I've got the legs to read that. You know, I enjoyed Tom King's 80, 80 issue Batman run that ended a, two or three years ago. I thought it was uh, sublime. But I just think a story of this nature would have been so hard to read in that format and to keep, you know, if you're only getting one new book every month or, you know, looking at the time it ran for, yeah, roughly one a month it would have been just an impossible task for the reader i think you would have had to have like a, a elephant elephantine memory or something like that yeah. to keep up with it um but it's it's a very impressive undertaking isn't it yeah and i think it, it shows up because again stuff that happens in issue one issue one and issue 100 are the perfect bookends so when you get there i can't wait for you to finish and we you know we'll just talk just to talk but i just i yeah. it, it is a perfect ending and it, it's like, it's gross and bloody. And there's some, some, some issues I'm like, I'm going to skim. I'm just going to skim. Um, and that's, a, you know, a tr testament to Rizzo's <laughs> art that I was like, I need to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to look, I'm going to look away. Um, especially anything with Lano in it. He's the worst. <laughs> he is the absolute worst character. And I hate him so he much. I hate everything about absolute him. Absolute animal, isn't he? Yeah. And, and there's nothing, he's the one. I think personally. Yeah. He, he's, he's got no redeeming qualities i think he's the i think he's the character of them all that would stop it from getting made i, I think like he's so awful and he does such horrific things that it's like we can't justify yeah. show but i mean again he's very homelander so again they made the boys so they, they share a lot of those personality traits of being soulless sociopaths so yeah. well yeah, we do live in the age of the anti-hero, so, you know, you never know. And and obviously, I haven't got there yet, but I do understand that they actually made a eight or ten part sequel to this that was called Brother Lono, which was mm -hmm. a, him af carrying on his story after the events of these main 100 issues. So obviously, the character did have did have some legs in it. I have, obviously, I haven't read it because I haven't got to the end of the 100 bullets yeah. yet. I don't know what it's like, but obviously, the the enthusiasm for the character must have been there at that at that time yeah i didn't read it because i know what it is and i and i will again i won't say too much i did because i have such a hard time with that character it's kind of like i don't know i don't know that i want to read i don't know that i want his redemption arc that's what it is it's his redemption story because you know you spend your time with the character like they did for so long 
and you're writing him doing horrible things and saying horrible things. And so, you know, at some point you have to make the commentary about redemption because I think redemption is part of this story is, yeah. is, your, is, is the difference between redemption, revenge, vengeance. Those three things kind of have this weird Venn diagram, right? And, and what's in the middle of them is what a 100 bullets is. is vengeance and revenge are not the same thing necessarily because you can be vengeful but not take revenge right and so and then there's this yeah. idea of redemption in there is now that you've done the thing are you redeemed are the people that you're defending redeemed and you don't get a lot of it's gray this book is gray <laughs> there's not a lot of clear-cut answers yeah. at the end yeah no it's not is it there's so yeah no, you know, it's, that's, I think that's the gift of the writing, really, is you, you're not really there to maybe judge the characters for their sort of motivations and that. You're there to, to read the story and then just come up with your own, at the end of it, maybe just come up with your own judgments on how you see things. You know, he's not saying, like you, like you just very eloquently said, this book is grey. Azarello doesn't give the characters a, a, a sense of, right, well, here's the line. Here's here, On this side, you're right. And on this side, what you do is wrong. Everyone's like, this aren't they sort of jumping over the swapping ends like it's a tennis match serving from both sides of the net and um, you know people do sort of flip-flop between you'll see a character and, and maybe an issue with that character will make you think well they're all you know and perhaps Milo there's good there's good in Milo this you're like well character. maybe or and Cole, Milo and Cole. Sense of morality yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Both you're like with them a couple yeah. of times you think they've like, got huh. a sense of right and wrong and then you're like oh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're with them. You think, oh, there's good in this person, but then they'll do something so fucking horrific. An issue or two down the line, you think, oh, okay, maybe maybe I was wrong. I'm not such a good judge of character after all. Uh, but that's, like I said, that's the beauty of the writing, I think. I, lo I like uh, moral ambiguity in characters. I like to characters where you don't just know which side of the line they walk on. So it's it's very, very clever writing, I think. Yeah, well, you're a Punisher fan. So I knew I knew you would like <laughs> yeah. this for so many reasons because A, yeah. I know you're a Punisher fan. I know your your love and affinity and some would argue encyclopedic knowledge of action films. And so <laughs> and, and you and that's good. Like you love those movies and like not just the good ones. I mean, I see the stuff you watch. Some of the stuff you watch, I I am on record of saying I think you're making up some movie posters. I think you're secretly a graphic designer and you've got all these like movie posters. You're like, I'm going to put this guy's head and this guy's head, this yeah. woman's head on this. I'm going to pretend that this is a movie and post it on Twitter and see who knows. And nobody knows because it could be. It could, if you call it hard or, or tough or shoot in the title, then people will be like, yeah, yeah. That, I guess that's a movie that Arrow put out at some point. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if, if Michael Dudikoff's name's on the marquee, then I'm there. I don't give a shit. And, and believe me, <laughs> I, I, I've watched some awful films, just awful, you know, bottom <laughs> of the barrel being scraped, you know, dollar bin shit. <laughs> and I've made my other half Sarah sit through them constantly you know and it's a testament saint. to her endurance that she she can watch them she is she <laughs> is she puts up with a lot she really does um but yeah i you know i don't care i don't care the shitter the shitter the better in my opinion you know you can I, you can stick your high-end action films i like the low-end stuff <laughs> give me the one that costs 50 bucks and they filmed it in a dumpster that's the one i want i want that one yeah well and that's the thing yeah, this stick stick john stick john wick i want the samurai cops of this world you know and Samurai Cop 2, don't forget, there was a sequel to that. Yes, yeah, yeah I've, I've got that also, shite. 
that was a tough sled. That was a tough one. I mean, at least Samurai Cop had a little bit of charm. Samurai Cop 2 was like, eesh. Yeah, but we're not here. But yeah. those things are part of this, though. They, these these yes. things lead into that. And I think this is a comment on those, like the moral ambiguity of the anti-hero and the fact that like what you just said is so smart is that there are a few times, and especially with, with Milo and Cole, and maybe even a little bit with Wiley, where you're like on their side for a minute and you're with them and I'm with you and I'm with you. And then you're like, what the fuck, motherfucker. And then you're pissed at yourself yeah. because you believed it. And I think that's what Azarello is saying. is like, hey, everybody, don't forget that at the end of the Die Hard, movies this is how many people john mcclain has just killed <laughs> he just killed yeah. them just yeah. murdered not there's no justice it's all vengeance it's all whatever it's just he's he's just killing people left and right james bond you are a big bond fan of course as am i literally has a license to kill and so the body count is high and so i think that's a really smart uh you know, that's what this move, that's what this comic is saying. It's like these people that you're kind of hero worshiping in the video games and in the films and in the other violent media you like, that's all good. We're all entertained by it, but also keep in mind this person's a serial killer. Like um, during the great Halloween rewatch that we are doing over on Pop Gorillas, I mm. had to rewatch the 2007 Rob Zombie piece of shit. Um, oh. The second one of his is even worse. Oh I didn't. That's the only one I've not seen. That first one, I hate it so oh. much because I was like, hey, Rob, I don't know if you know this, but Michael Myers isn't a hero, but you've surely made him one in your first mm -hmm. film. Like that is a movie. It is Michael Myers origin story and why he's a hero. I'm like, you have missed the whole fucking point of this. And it's <laughs> you remember, though, there's a, what is it? Is it the third or fourth Freddy movie where Freddy starts cracking jokes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. and you're like, wait, wait, didn't aren't you a pedophile who, yeah. who burnt children? Why are you funny? Yeah. Why are you adorable? You aren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you shouldn't make monsters into sort of uh, morally ambiguous. All of a sudden, if you say if you say right. stall out that they're an absolute monster, then you need to be you need to stick with that. I think. Yeah, and I think that's why with Frank Castle. He is more, he does good. He isn't just out indiscriminately wiping people out where the body count, like the, the casual killing and more importantly, the collateral damage in this book and 100 bullets is vast. I mean, what do you think the collateral damage is? I mean, they, thousands of people are killed who are just walking down the street and they're just killed indiscriminately. And they, they, they show it. Rizzo shows us that. You know, he shows mm. us the death. It's not commented on, but he lays it bare for us. Um, because again, I think it goes to what you're saying. It's like, these people are bad and um, we can read about it, but also then ask ourselves, well, maybe we shouldn't have a Scarface poster on our wall because he's a mean son of a bitch who kills people and deals drugs. He's not a hero, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the body count is massive in this, in this, in this book. I mean, there's, I think, I think there's not an issue goes by where someone doesn't die or is beaten to within an inch of their life at least it really is one of the most brutal books i think i've ever read um especially in a semi mainstream uh, publishing as well um but it, it it never to me it never feels massively gratuitous um which sounds kind of strange for such a graphically violent book but it it tends 
I don't think it's it doesn't shock me when I when I when I watch it and read it if that makes sense. It, it kind of fits with the tone of the world that Azarello's created, doesn't it? It never feels over the top. I mean, and there's nothing held back in the art. I mean, it's full of dead bodies and people, you know, m- mutilated and, and and you know people's jaws being ripped off and things like this. You know, oh, um, that one in the bayou, women that, that women objectified and things. Oh, yeah, 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 with the bear trap on his, on his jaw, yeah. That is horrific. The poor guy, the poor, poor, guy. poor guy. Yeah, no, and the objectification yeah. of women, for sure. And again, it, there's there's a plenty of male nudity, but there's never, and Rhea will be mad about this book, because they do not release the dongs. There's not nary a dong, nary a wang. No, no there's, a lot of bu- there's a lot of male butt cheeks in this, but no full frontal. No, which is, again, I think super intentional, not in a homophobic way like we don't want to release the dongs but in a way of like commenting on all of these stupid movies that you know that people love for the wrong reasons like i love a good shoot 'em up action movie too i mean i give me that i want to see something like that i love that but i'm also super aware of it like i i'm aware of what it is and i'm aware of what it isn't and i think what they do by deliberately never showing us that it's they're saying don't isn't that silly that in every single you know action movie for no good reason boobs no good reason one of my favorite movies john carpenter's they live there's no nudity in that until the very last shot for no reason there's a naked woman at the the very last shot of they live (laughs) why why is that there there's no nudity in the whole movie and you're like boobs at the end you you already got a rated r how many times does roddy say fuck in that movie all the time Oh, you yeah, don't yeah, yeah. need the boobs at the end, but they're just like boobs at the end because we can't because we have to. It's almost like they were like, John, there's no boobs in your movie this time. And he's like, right. This movie doesn't need boobs. It's about aliens. So they're like boobs. All right. Yeah. So he threw it in at the end almost as an afterthought. Um, but I think this book really comments on that by showing it the way that it does. Yeah. Yeah. The the women are, apart from sort of the principal characters, like Dizzy character, and the female members of the trust of women in this book are generally there as, you know, love interest slash punching bag slash, oh. you know, set decoration, really, which is kind of terrible when you think, well, it's, it's very terrible. Totally when you terrible. Think about, yeah. When you think about it. Yeah, of course it is. Um, and I don't know. It, it, do I, do I, I'm not sure where I stand on that. You know, do I have a, a massive problem with the way they're depicted in, in this book? Yeah, probably I do. To be honest with you, it's not, it's not a nice way to, to 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 depict females, is it? Really? I mean, yes, there's some stronger female characters in there, but for the majority of the time, they're there to sort of be reactive to what the men are doing, if that makes sense, and, and you know, not treated in the best of ways. And it's often depicted in a state of undress, and you know, of loose moral fiber and things like this, or, or drunks or drug addicts, that kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting way to uh, to depict it. I don't know. I, there was That was probably the one thing that I found a bit, like I said, I'm not bothered by gratuitous violence and, and, and horrific language and all the rest of it. I couldn't care less, to be honest with you. Not, very little offends me in this life. But I did find that just a little bit, a little bit jarring. And I, I'm not, like you were saying before, about you're not sure this would work today or whether 
it would get published today because of certain characters and, and what have you. I, I just think as well, that kind of side of it might hinder it. I, you know, do you think the same or do you think it's maybe I'm being oversensitive? I don't no, know. No, no, I don't think you are being oversensitive. I think it's, but I, I think it's intentional. I think it is gross. I think it's supposed to feel gross. Echo is the character in particular who gets, boy, Echo's, Echo's got a rough, rough go. Um, I, yeah. I feel, and it's like she's, she seems to be a willing participant in all of the horrible things that happen to her. Um, you know, like she keeps coming back. Like she has many chances to get away and you're like, oh, fuck, there's Echo again. What the hell is happening? Um, what I think about all of the, the stuff that you're saying is totally true. But what I think it is, is it's never painted in a leery, way the gaze that that Rizzo gives us is 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 not the women are clearly being objectified in the world but I don't think he's drawing them in an objectified way of course yes they're like you know smoking hot ladies and whatever they're drawn within an inch of their life to be you know Catwoman with her clothes off that's what they're doing I understand that but I also think that's the comment that he's making and again that's why there's no dongs because it's not like Vertigo Comics doesn't have them they do they could have <laughs> right they could have yeah. if they wanted yeah. to but so to me it's the comment about it it's like we're gonna it's a dark satire right it, satire it works this is what I say all the time. Satire works when it lives in the universe that it's making fun of or, or addressing. It has a social commentary yeah. on it. So I feel, I think you're supposed to feel grossed out. I don't think there's any, there's, you know, there's some sex in this book that is, you know, consensual sex. And that is, you know, but it's, it's funny, like, those scenes are always drawn. The lighting, you know, it's colored a little bit different. Um, there's not just a lot of love. Yeah. There's no lovely sex in here, but there's very, you know, the consensual sex looks no. like the men, the male and the female are enjoying themselves where for the most part, it's like creepy and leery and it's uncomfortable. And sometimes you can't turn the page fast enough. So to me, I think it was on purpose. I don't feel like Azarello and Rizzo are, are objectifying the women but it could easily seem that way. And it's the same concern I have with reading this yeah. book or with the boys or even with Punisher. Like, you're, you know, you, we, we both like Frank Castle. We think Frank Castle is a sympathetic character, but at the same time, we're not going to go out, strap guns to our backs and just start going to kill everybody. Like we understand no. where Frank's <laughs> coming from, but he's also the creators of Punisher and the Marvel comics writ large are asking us to question what Frank is doing all the time. So it's never glorified violence. There's never like one of those scenes of Frank just like, like having a joy gasm while he's killing people. The look no. on Frank's face when he's killing somebody, he always is pained to do it or he's got no emotion. And you see that a lot in this book is that when the women are naked, they're joyless. And even the men that are looking at them are kind of joyless. Yeah. You know, this isn't yeah. like, the way they used to draw She-Hulk, um, you know, the the John Byrne She-Hulk days, right? Where, you know, at least John Byrne yeah, She-Hulk, yeah. which was a brilliant book. And maybe one day on Mandatory Marvel in DC, we'll do that John Byrne She-Hulk run. That was maybe one of the funniest books ever written. Um, but it was super aware of itself too, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah. I'm going to draw her in yeah. these super sex sexy clothes and then she's going to look right at you and make fun of you for looking at her. Um, so like... I feel like it's doing that, but it's just not as funny because it isn't a funny book. That was a long, that was me talking too much. I'm sorry. That's what I think about it. Am I wrong on that? Am I giving the book too much credit? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think it's, yeah, I think it ties into what we were saying before about they're not trying to make any 
perhaps make any comment on the characters and whether the characters are right or wrong. They're letting you just read it and make your own conclusions at the end. You know, people are not on one side of the angels or the demons in this book. There's sort of betwixt and between. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just did kind of make me wonder why pretty much every female character was sort of, you know, relegated to that status. What you just said makes perfect sense. It really does. Um, and, you know, it, 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 Azarello's art is never overly gratuitous when it comes to, you know, showing females in, in a vulnerable state or anything like that. I mean, his art in general has kind of a, it has kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost like a, a cartoonish quality to it, doesn't it? Now, it, it's not, this isn't, photorealistic Alex Ross style art or anything like this. Riso's style is very, I don't want to say abstract, but it's it's done in such a way where it feels kind of stylized, doesn't it? So in, in a way, that's what makes the violence more palatable in this because it's not done, like I said, like a photorealistic kind of art where, it, you know, if you saw people being murdered and killed and suffering horrific injuries, if you're doing it in a very realistic fashion, you'd be like, oh God, oh, yeah, that's a bit much. But because it's, not overly realistic and kind of a, a, a heightened sense of reality in, in the visual imagery, not in the dialogue, but in the visual imagery. Yeah. It, it kind of makes it easier to swallow, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think what I think Rizzo does really well too, is I agree with everything. And I think he, it, he almost, like you said, the heightened sense, sometimes he caricature, makes caricatures of people. So like our yeah. friend, the trumpet player, who unfortunately is his name, I can't remember, who's like, Again, as soon as you feel sympathy for a character in this book, you better know he's not he or she's not making it out to the end. Because yeah. um, you're like, as soon as you start to like somebody, they're either going to stab you in the back or going to die. And that guy, that was, that is maybe the one of all of them that is just reading it again too. And you're just like, oh, it's such a gut punch. But that gentleman, this African-American uh, trumpet player in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, he's drawn in a very characteristic way of what African-Americans were drawn, you know, like it's a callback to really ugly racist imagery from years and years ago, um, the way that he's drawn, yeah. like over the top. And he does that in several ways. Like he will care, make, not just, he'll make people into caricatures and then make you uncomfortable. Like yeah. I'm uncomfortable, not just what happens to him, but with him as a character, he makes me uncomfortable. The way that yeah. his dialect is, the way that he looks. And again, that's clearly intentional because Rizzo's talented enough to, to discern, you know, there's sometimes you're like, wait, is that Graves or is that Shepard? You're like, I need a better. And that's intentional. Mm. I think that's where uh, Mulvihill, Patricia Mulvihill comes in as the colorist where she's like shading it in such a way where you're like, wait, who's the old white guy? Which yeah. one of the two old white guys is it? Um, and we'll talk about the old white guys in a second, but um, cause I want to talk about their names before we, you know, get to the very, very end. But um I agree with everything that you're saying, but I, I think, I think he, he does that um, really well. And what did you make of that? Were there any imagery? And I mean, like you're saying, if that were photorealistic, but were there any of his drawings of, cause this is a very ethnically diverse cast. Um, what did you make of the way that Risso mm. uh, addresses that? Do you think any of that was offensive? Cause there were a couple there where I was like, I'm on the line of being offended, but I'm like, I think I know why you're doing it. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly the. I think he, was his name Gabriel or something like that. That might be because he played something a trumpet. Like of course, Gabriel. that would be his name. Duh. Yeah, of course it would. Yeah, who knows his name? <laughs> um, yeah, I know what you mean. He's drawn like a caricatured African American 
kind of guy from a, a certain time period, which yeah is, is a bit a bit jarring. Um, I mean, I didn't think anything went too far where where that's concerned. Um, like you said, it's extremely ethnically, ethnically diverse. You've got a lot of um, sort of Hispanic, Latino uh, gang stuff at the start. You've got like, African American people in there. You've got you know white bread people in there you've got a, a bit of everything in there when it comes to the ethnicities um but no i don't think anything's anything's over the top um i mean what does work so well in terms of the different ethnicities i'm sort of going to go off topic here but i did want to mention it is how well azarello writes different ethnicities unbelievable in terms of the dialect it is I mean, let's think about this. This came out in 99, right? He was born in 59. So he was 40 years old when this came out and it ran for 10 years. So he was 50 by the time, it, or just reaching 50 by the time the last issue was published, right? So right. he's a middle-aged man. He's, 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 this has been released all through his 40s, yeah? But I mean, I'm, I'm 41, so I'm similar age to how he was when this book started. And his the way he can inhabit sort of different uh, ethnic groups different age groups and come up with like, i think i mentioned it to you when i first started yeah. reading it and i was like wow this sort of um hispanic gangbanger dialect and slang is really hard for me to understand as a man from the northwest of england right um but you know it, but it feels so authentic doesn't it it feels like such an authentic voice and the way he's able to do that you know adopt um ethnicities that aren't his own but still make them sound like it's written by someone who is of that ethnicity. It doesn't sound like a middle-aged man, Brian Azzarello, writing it. It sounds like someone who's deeply ingrained in each of those cultures writing it. I mean, that, that to me is the strength of the book, the authentic dialogue. It all sounds very, very real and doesn't sound like someone's just trying, you know, learn a few slang terms and a few words and try to just pepper the dialogue with that to make it sound as though this is, you know, this is, this, this, hey, I can really realistically depict this world. It really does sound like he's he's lived that, which is really bizarre. Um, but yeah, for me, that the overall strength of the of the book, as well as everything else. But what the one thing that really stands up is is the dialogue and how how real and um, just it feels like it's lifted straight from those situations, doesn't it? It does. And I think that's what I was saying about his character. He's such a great character artist, character writer. And I think, yeah. I think that's hard to do. It's easy. It's easy. You know, just have like Batman punches a guy or whatever, you know, like he really gets in there, whatever it is he's doing, he gets into the character's head. And I think one of my favorite things, everything you said, echo, I'm not going to try to add to that. One of my favorite things that he does is with loop and loops, dad, they talk about things that we don't see. And so what an amazing bit of writing is for us to, and even with Loop's dad and Graves, and there's, there's conversations this world has lived in. We're spending these years yeah. with them. But when we see them, they're talking about stuff. They have shorthand that like the way Loop will talk to Lono is different than the way Loop talks to Graves, the way that different that he talks to his dad. So there's this commentary on code switching that a lot of African-Americans do because depending on who they're talking to, they know, you know, they're being raised in a certain way to be like, if you're talking to this guy, old white guy in a suit, you're going to talk this way. And, and, and Dizzy does it too. But I, I like the shorthand. And that's the problem at the beginning. You're dropped in to Dizzy's life. Dizzy's our first point of view character. And we're dropped into his, into her world. And you're like, I don't know who any of these people are, but they all know each other. So they're talking about, remember yeah. this, or, oh, I haven't seen you in a bit or whatever. And you're just like, wait, well, I don't know when this is. Where's issue yeah. zero? Where's issue negative 10? But, yeah, yeah. but that's his, that's great writing of character building when he just, 
when characters have shorthand, because one of the things that always drives me crazy is when Exposition Man shows up and for no reason, and movies do this all the time, where they'll be like, oh, remember when blah, blah, blah. You're like, no, 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 no. The two people who lived it would never say remember when and then go into that. They would be like, ha and they would shorthand it and you say that time mm-hmm. when this happened. And the only reason you would explain it is if there's a new character there. And because there is no yeah. new characters to these people, we don't get that. So it is, I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating. It is, it's incredibly frustrating mm. to read, but it also shows I, I, he's trusting his audience. He knows who this is. He's writing for adults. He doesn't, he's not expecting a 12 year old to pick this up, nor should any 12 year olds pick this up. Please don't give this to a 12 year uh, um, no, 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 no. <laughs> not at all. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's just quality all, all around. I definitely think Mulva Hill, uh, her coloring, I did want to just mention is spot on. I think she, yes. she really, you know, uh, um, she really deserved, I don't know if she was one of the Eisners. I should have done that's bad podcast hosting, but she really, her coloring because there's a lot and she knew what to do. She gave us the right amount of ick and she knew when to fade out and she knew when to like brighten it up. She knew when the blood could just be splattered in the background and almost seem like, you know, like maroon. Cause that means it's been there a while. Like she knew what to do. We can tell everything. She was fantastic. And again, it must be crazy for her to like get those pages every week and be like, okay. Get to draw a nipple and get color in a nipple. That's fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's got to be weird to be the color artist. You're like looking at these. She's obviously in on it. She was the colorist for the whole book. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she earned earned the money. That's for sure. (laughs) Oh, man. She absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the names. But it works so well. Her coloring works so well with the art, doesn't it? Oh, my God. It's I couldn't imagine anybody else doing it. Honestly, it's like we talked about that when we did why, too. It's like sometimes the colorist is the right colorist for that moment when I just did Pretty Deadly. Jordi Belair colors that. And it's like, yep, that's who because she's I I love what Jordi does. And you can tell I'm getting to the point. And I don't know if you're this way where you can tell who the colorist is just by looking. Mm. Are, isn't that crazy? Like that is that good for us or is that a bad use of our brain cells? Uh, you know, you've read a lot of fucking comics when you can tell, <laughs> tell whose color work it is. Um, but I don't know. That to me, that's good. That's good. It appeals to the sort of guy in the guy in my head that likes to make lists of things. So I love it. I love it. I do too. I think it's great. And I think, I think it's a testament to the skill. Like we were talking about drummers today um, on our discord, you would be in Matt Lloyd. And um, you can tell though, like, like most people are like, that's just drum. There's somebody playing drums. But like, if you love certain music, you can be like, you can hear a lick. Like I can be like, that's Lindsey Buckingham playing guitar. That's a Lindsey Buckingham guitar solo. It sounds different than a George Harrison or an Eric Clapton or an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo. It does. And some guitar solos, you're like every eighties ass, you know, ass rock hair band from the eighties, they all sound the same because very few of them had really great. T- you can tell when it's Guns and Roses, not because of Axel's voice, but because Slash is playing guitar. Right. I mean, yeah. because you're like, oh, that's what makes Guns and Roses better than all these other bands is Slash. And and so it, it's just that way. I think sometimes the color artist is just the right like, oh, that's who's playing bass. You got a good bass player. You got a good drummer you don't really notice you're not the you're not the rock star you're not out front you're not diamond dave hanging your balls out in everybody's face you're just doing the work (laughs) 
you're the rhythm it, section. Yeah. It all fits together. Yeah. And I think Clem Robbins, he did all the lettering. And because of the language stuff, he does a great job too. He he gets, because what I said to you when you were like, I'm struggling a little with the language. I was like, just it'll wash over you. It becomes very poetic and rhythmic. And it does eventually, especially reading it. And I think too, like you mentioned before, if we were reading this one one issue at a time, I don't think that that poet, the, the poetry of the language would work. No. No, definitely yeah. not. No. Yeah, not it, at all. It, 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 it demands to be read in big chunks at a time, this, this work. 100%. I totally agree. All right, let's talk about the names for about five minutes, if you don't mind. So okay. I love the names of the characters. And so our, we've got Graves, okay? We've got Shepherd. Yeah. Somebody's called Slaughter, all right? Yes. And then some of the nicknames, the dog, the bastard, the wolf, the point man, the rain, the monster, the saint. And then Dizzy and Loop, who are the new characters, are Dizzy and Loop. Her name's Isabel. His name is Lewis. But they go by yes. Dizzy and Loop. And so they've got this circular, like, they're, they're spinning out of control as they're finding their way as our two point of view characters. I think, again, going back to Azarello's writing, the names are brilliant. Like Echo, she keeps showing back up, doesn't she? You think Echo's gone. Oh, there she is. The names matter. And I think this is one of the greatest named casts for what they do. Some of it's a little on the nose, but some of it is like really mm. smart. What do you make of the names? I love them. Yeah, it's great. Each name is a metaphor for who and what that character is, isn't it really? Like you said, some of them are like, it's right there. Um, <laughs> but then others are a, a sl slightly more subtle, aren't they? You know, slightly, you know, it's, you know, it, graves, is it because he leads everyone to their grave or puts people, you know, his job is to kill people. Uh, you know, Shepherd, is it because he has to, you know, guide? He was he was in charge of the Minutemen at one point, who can say? Um, I like it. It's quite clever. I wonder whether he was being playful with that or he was just, you know, having having some fun at his own expense there, Azarello, or whether he's trying to say something with it. I really don't know, but it, it, it's it's good, though. I quite like that. You know, it's like a, a superhero name, isn't it? Aquaman. Yeah, that tells you all you need to know about who and what that character is. The, the flash, you know, the green, the green fucking lantern. What, what does he do? What, what does he do? Green I don't know. That's weird. Um, yeah. Although yeah. the flash could be. Yeah. Yeah. Know, ba right Batman. At, yeah. But the flash could be also the streaker. You know, it depends on what you what how the word flash yes, means yes. in different countries. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you don't want to <laughs> be the flasher. Um, no, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. And I think I do think it's a nod to, to superhero comics. And so like I, I I'm with you. I think it's. It's on the nose. It's lovely. I think it's great. It's there for you to see, but it's also, I think, poking a little bit of fun at, at it all. It's like, right, Graves is going to lead you to the grave, Shepard. I think it gives you the sense that Shepard isn't as, as bad as you think he is. Not that he's sympathetic, not that he's good. Um, in the mm. second part, you didn't get to the part where you actually see when Graves and Shepard first meet, right? That's not in this. Uh, I don't think so. So no. Yeah, that's later. So yeah. I think it may be right yeah. after because the way that this ends with what happens to Shepard with what you read end. So you do eventually see like a flashback of like a young Shepard playing basketball and Graves recruiting him off the basketball court. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. So, right. But again, so it's like trying to, once again, just trying to lure you in to care about these people. And you're like, yeah, you're still a fucking monster. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it was really smart. I, I love I love clever names. I'm not great with clever names always when I'm creating characters. I'm like, uh, name, you know, like I'm like, I'm like uh, Steve Carell in uh, 
in Anchorman. I love lamp. Are you just looking at things and saying you love them? <laughs> That's sometimes it's like I need yeah. a dance. It's like, what am I gonna do? Oh, can I name everybody Grayson? Because I've got six things of Dick Grayson on my desk. No, I can't. I can't. Everybody's name can't be Grayson. I gotta yeah. come up with something else. So yeah, I, so I think obviously that took a lot of time and, and energy to create them. And, and I do think they their names are what they are. Um, so, and it is it is it is appropriate that Lano is the dog, but Lano is also like a Hawaiian name um, for the god of peace, which I think there really? is a, yeah, interesting irony there. Yeah, because he is definitely wow. not that. Wow, that is some, uh, that is some uh, ironically uh, named character right there. My God, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Flipping plus out. he's just a big, awful white douchebag. Like, um, and that's the thing. Like, a lot of the douchiest, worst characters are the white guys, right? And there's this, there, again, there's the commentary about, and while the 13 is pretty ethnically diverse, you know, Graves and Shepard are two main characters, are white guys in suits who sometimes you are like, wait, who is that? Yeah. You know, sometimes, were there ever times when you, like, one of them, neither of them would be in it for a while. And one of them would show up sitting on a bench and you'd be like, wait, is that Shepard or is that Graves? Did that ever happen to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I, I found myself reading it and waiting for the other character to address them by their name <laughs> yeah. or for them to, if it was a, a new character, they're meeting to say, my name is, mm-hmm. and then they'll say who they are. Yeah. They, they kind of, yeah. Visually kind of blend into one at, at you know, at certain points because, because of the way they look, the way they dress, you know, age-wise quite similar as well so yeah uh, it, it did it did kind of it did kind of feel that way yeah i'm yeah. sure it was intentional uh, one thing though, i did too. want to mention though which i re- oh yeah yeah i'm sure yeah. i'm sure it was yeah definitely yeah. yeah but one thing i did want to mention and, and i didn't want to go through this without mentioning it, it's probably my favorite issue out of the entire run of the 58 i've read it was about halfway 20 something where this um this story crosses over into the actual real world with the story of Joe DiMaggio being involved in the oh JFK. Oh my God. Wasn't yeah, that yeah. amazing? I know because I'd, at first I was reading it going, is that supposed to be Joe DiMaggio? You it know, is. And, and, and it becomes, it is. So he was involved in the, and he, because obviously for people who don't know, Joe DiMaggio was married to Marilyn Monroe at, at a time. And then depending on what you believe, her death might have had some government fingertips involved in it. Her overdose might not have been so accidental because of her alleged love affair with JFK, blah, 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 blah. So obviously, DiMaggio being a former husband, still in love with her and is at a graveside, is given the means to take revenge as all the other characters have, have done by what we've discussed uh, earlier to go and assassinate JFK and you discover that he was there that fateful day in Dallas, 1963. And that is just crazy. The way the, this, this bizarre outlandish story then just crosses over into real world events. Granted, I don't think for a second, Joe DiMaggio was there with a rifle in his hand, (laughs) taking shots at JFK's head. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was, uh, who can say love does crazy things to us, but that's great. Just that it's only one issue or something. It's one. Yeah. It, it crosses over it, to you because, you know, he it, doesn't it, stay in it for any longer than that. He's been and gone, but it's such a great, it's a lovely little treat. Yeah. He's in the background of another issue. Cause that, that one moment in the oh, hospital right. has two issues, right? I agree. Okay, with, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Perfect. I think what it does and the reason that I love it so much. And this is, this is the moment to me where if you're unsure, it's, it's like, you're right. It's like two years into this series they drop this thing in there because up to this point, you're like, this isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. Whatever. This is stylized. This is a commentary on whatever. And then they're yeah. like, oops. 
And so now all of your little conspiracy theory brains, and, and I'm not saying conspiracy theories like the vaccine is going to give you, make you magnetic, not stupid shit, but we all in our hearts believe in a conspiracy theory or two. We all do. Mm. Oh, we, yeah, I do. Yeah. Of course, of course, because you're a person and because there's been enough evidence historically of cover-ups, government cover-ups, secret things. Like, did you see nobody? The film? Yeah. 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 See, like, that's his whole shtick, right? He's a guy who's there to do the things the government doesn't want you to know about. He doesn't exist. And they're like, who are you? I'm nobody. And sure enough, they get a phone call and it goes away. And so we all think our government, all of our governments, like, do this shit. We all think that there are, that MI6 is real. We think that, right? I mean, we're like, there's agents out there killing people on the behalf of the, of the British people or on the behalf of the American people or the Australian people. We believe that. So what I loved about that one crossing over into the real world, that's the moment when I was like, this changes the tone for the previous 24 books. And for the rest of the series, this one brilliant piece of writing makes us think, this is about, this is always been about us. This has been about us. And then you look at your own government, you look at your own things, like our mm. country, the war on drugs is such a fucking joke. And we all know that we could just legalize it and make a shit ton of money, or we could do something else, but it's about, it's about something else. It's about power. It's about money. There's two, there's corrupt politicians all the time. So I loved that one too. I'm with you because that's the moment, not just that it crossed into the real world, but it made me think, oh, this whole book is doing something different. And from that moment forward, I thought about what the trusts were and who the Minimat were in a totally different way. And it, it yeah. made it way more real. Oh, yeah, yeah. It makes it more tangible, doesn't it? Because it's, it's touching real life events there. You know, like, like I said, I don't think that actually happened for a second. But some of what is referred to as real life events, the assassination of JFK, the death of Marilyn Monroe, her former marriage to Joe DiMaggio, all those, all these things happened for real. So there's bits, when that crosses over into this story, it just gives you something extra to hang your hat on, I think. And I think it's very clever. I, I do like that when, when comic book stories do cross over into real world events, here and there anyway. It, 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 just, it just makes it, not, I don't want to say more believable, but it just makes you makes you think about it a little bit more, doesn't it? And I agree. I love apply it. it more to a real life situation. Yeah, and yeah. it makes you, and it does. It just scratches your conspiracy theory itch. Whatever your everybody out there, whatever it is, you believe in Area Fifty Four or Fifty One. Sorry, that you believe in J the JFK. It was a cover up. You believe in whatever. I mean, the reason for me always willing to believe in some conspiracies is because of what the Americans did to the Tuskegee um, Airmen. You know, we they gave to they gave these people syphilis and then didn't treat it on purpose and then covered it up for years. And you're just like, son of a bitch. If you're willing to do that to war heroes, yeah. your own war heroes, what are the other things you're willing to do in the name of protection or science or whatever? And it's that when you think about a few good men, right? That's the whole thing is, you know, I'm the reason you get to sleep well at night. Nicholson's whole speech about you can't handle the truth, right? We can't handle, yeah, do yeah. we want to know that the trust is real or do we not want to know that the trust is real? Yeah. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Do we want do do we do we do we want to live in blissful ignorance that these things go on while we sleep in our beds at night, or do we want the curtain to be pulled back and find out that you know this this sort of Byzantine group of thirteen families have been ruling sort of the new world and kept in check by a group of you know assassins, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know. Do we? 
do we want to know that exists or would we rather just live in blissful ignorance and go about our little lives? It's I don't know. Great, I don't know. It's a great question. And when you get to the end, I can't wait for you to get to the end because when you do, you'll let me know and we'll just talk off. It. We'll just talk just to talk and we won't record that. But I, I can't wait for you to get to the end. Um, again, oh, the, yeah, final pan- the final panel is something special. So um, yeah. yeah, well, thank you for this. That will we'll end on who's watching, who's, who's listening in on the other end of your phone, everybody. You don't know. It's me and X. We're listening. We're the trust. We're, I'm letting everybody know now. We are two <laughs> of the 13 family. The Comics in Motion family is the trust. That's what we'll say. And um, so you should trust in us that we have brought you amazing content. So on that punny note, tell everybody, my good friend, who this book should be given to, number one, and then two, how everybody can follow you and read your amazing writing and hear your dulcet tones in other places. Uh, in terms of who the book should be given to, um, certainly no children, uh, a discerning adult. I would say it should be given to a discerning adult with an open mind and a strong stomach. Um, Perfect. Then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter at Maxi Byrne, which is spelled M-A-X-Y-B-Y-R-N-E. If you go there, there's links to various websites i write bits and pieces for uh there's a link to well there's a link to what people are listening to right now which is the comics in motion network where my uh, show mandatory marvel and dc can be found along with this quite wonderful show of tony's and an absolute litany of other amazing shows now isn't there there's there's just amazing content coming off that stream so people should hit that subscribe button uh, and follow at comics in motion p on twitter as well for all the information uh, you'll certainly be, be glad you did um, so yeah, find me on there, say hello, follow me, uh, you know, DM me if you want to come on the show or suggest a book to cover on it. Uh, I'm all ears. It's all the, down to the guest anyway, what we cover on that show. Uh, so yeah, by all means, do say hi. Excellent. And they should, because Max is an excellent human being. And he also knows a thing or two about music. So if you want to talk to Max about that, he too. We were, we were having a great <laughs> chat, you and me and Matthew B. Lloyd today about drummers, rock drummers. What a great chat. Um, we all agree, Stuart Copeland is no joke, everybody, just so you know. Um, and Neil Pert, you should, if you don't know who they are, really, what is wrong with you? Um, but you yeah. can follow me on Twitter at Tricycle Boombox and everything Max said about the Comics in Motion Network. And um, I have this side project with Jack and Rhea called The Pop Gorillas. You'll hear us on Comics in Motion, but if you can't wait to hear us as a mashup show, you can subscribe to Pop Gorillas. And then every day, sometimes there were three out today, you never know when we'll strike. We're the gorillas of pop culture. Gorillas with a U, not an O just like in the commitments, mm-hmm. they say. So follow us there and you can get fun, spoiler, everything spoiler free, less time than it takes to listen to a song. So sometimes they're 40 seconds and sometimes they're five minutes, but they're just fun reviews and we're having a good time with that. Thanks everybody, we'll see you next time. The world is a vampire Sent Secret destroyers
Despite all my rage, I am still just a 